Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on pages 786 and 787 in the Pew Bible. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Well, let's just admit it. We'd rather Jesus had never said these words. There's a whole lot of other texts we'd rather be hearing a sermon on this morning. Hard enough to come to church post-Gasparilla. Now we've got to talk about loving your enemies, too? Come on, preacher, can't you pick a different text? Like, God so loved the world, that would be great. Do not worry about tomorrow, we'd love that one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, absolutely, Jesus, you could say that all day long. But turn the other cheek, give them your cloak, love your enemies. Sometimes we wish the gospel had a pause button because we'd push it right about now. Because these are words that we would rather Jesus have never said. These are words, after all, that we would prefer to ignore. Not because they are hard to understand, but because there is no mistaking what it is that it is asking of us. Turning the other cheek, giving the cloak off our back, loving our enemies. These, these are things that directly go against our basic instincts, our, our reflexive responses. These are things that we would rather not do. They fly in the face of conventional wisdom. When someone has hurt you, you want to strike back. When someone has slapped you, you want to slap them back. Not, not this business about praying for those who persecute you and blessing your enemies. After all, we want to think those are signs of weakness. That's what helpless people do. That's what voiceless people do. Maybe Jesus is just plain asking us to give up when people hurt us. Or is he? Years ago, I read a wonderful piece by the great theologian, one of my favorite authors of all time, a guy named Walter Wink, who specialized in advocating for nonviolence and helping us understand new ways to see spiritual warfare and our combat against the forces of evil and wickedness in the world. 
And he offered an interpretation of this text that I've never forgotten. It has opened my eyes to a deep level of insight to understand what Jesus was really asking of the disciples and what Jesus is asking of us today. First of all, there's this business of turning the other cheek. Jesus said, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, to unpack this a little bit, I want to share with you two very important, two critical pieces of understanding the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world, which I think are very important if we're going to understand what Jesus really meant when he said, turn the other cheek. The first is to recognize that in those days, there were two fundamental ways that a person might choose to hit another person. Two ways that an individual might strike someone else. The first way is the way that a master would hit his slave. The way that a master would strike their servant. And that's always done, back in those days, with the back of the hand. That's the way you get your servant in line. That's the way you get your slave to act the way you want him to. That's the way you punish someone that you're in power over. The second way is the way combatants would fight in an arena. Two equal people engaged in conflict. And that was always done, not with the back of the hand, but with a closed fist or an open hand. That's the way equals would combat each other, like Rocky Balboa in the ring, slapping each other or hitting each other with a closed fist. There's this way in which the powerful would subject the powerless, and there's this way in which two equals would engage in conflict. That's the first cultural nugget behind this text. The second important piece of insight is the reminder that in the ancient Near East, all that you do in public is with your right hand. The way you work, the way you conduct commerce, the way you interact with other people, the way you greet others, everything that was done in public was done with your active hand, that in those days was done with your right hand. But your left hand then was reserved for private matters. Now, I I know we've got kids in the chancel, so the best way I'm going to describe this is to say that your left hand was your hygiene hand. You know what I mean here? Okay. It's the hand that you use for personal sanitation. It's your cleaning up after yourself hand. In other words, the stuff that you would only do in the privacy of your own home. The world sees the right hand, your active hand, your power hand. The left hand for private matters, your, your sanitation hand. All right. So those are the two pieces of insight that we need to understand before we even get to this interesting business of turning the other cheek. The rest of understanding this, I think, that would require a personal demonstration. So I will need a volunteer, but it occurred to me that if I were to ask for a volunteer after sharing with you hitting someone and, and personal hygiene, I bet I wouldn't get a single hand to go up in the sanctuary. So um, I'm just going to volunteer Michael Dougherty to come up. Michael? All right. I'm his boss, so he basically has to do whatever I ask him to do. Hi there, Michael. Oh, look at this. So, Michael is standing here, 
And now we're ready to explore what Jesus said. Now notice, there's a word in this verse that we often overlook, but it's actually the most critical word in the entire text. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, the right cheek. So, Michael, if you would, please present your right cheek to me. Very good. Very nice. Now, notice immediately when he's presenting his right cheek to me, what Jesus is actually conveying here is a power dynamic between the master and the director of traditional worship. (laughs) This is fun. Between the bully and the bullied between the oppressor and the oppressed, between the one who's got all the power and the one who is voiceless and weak and helpless. When Jesus says when someone strikes you in the right cheek, he's saying that someone has taken their right hand and struck you with the back of their hand on your right cheek. In other words, someone has caused a great injustice to you. A bully has abused you. An oppressor has taken away your dignity and your rights. That's what Jesus is describing here. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not say when someone comes after you and bullies you not to take up arms and come back after them. He doesn't advocate for violence. Instead, what Jesus says here is, turn the other cheek, present the left cheek. And that does not mean that Jesus is saying, well, just let him have at you. Let them keep on beating the tar out of you. Allow yourself to be the continued victim of more violence. Just sit there and take it. That is not what Jesus says when he advises us to turn the other cheek. Because what happens when you choose to turn the other cheek? He is now actually forcing the bully to make a choice. Because you see... If I were to choose to come after Michael continually with the back of my hand, with the back of my right hand, I mean, the only, I mean, the only way I could, I mean, uh, 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 uh. this is what you get for having your son beat me up on stage in a mall. Uh, uh, uh. That doesn't strike the fear of God in you at all, does it? I mean, you're afraid now for another reason, I'm sure, but that's not going to work if I'm the bully. Option number two would for me to strike you with the back of my left hand, but there's no way I'm going to do anything with my private hand. That would be utterly humiliating to me. So I'm not going to do that to him. That leaves only one choice. What Michael is saying here is that if you're going to strike me again, If you're going to beat me up at all, even one more time, I'm going to turn my left cheek to you so that now the only choice I have is to come at you with my right hand with a closed fist or an open face. And therefore, if you're going to come after me one more time, it will not be because you are my bully. It'll be because you are my equal. And we are now equal combatants on this stage. And therefore, what Michael is saying is, I no longer allow you to rob me of my human dignity. I will no longer allow your power to rob me of my sense of self-worth. 
I will no longer be dehumanized by this system. I will no longer be subject to your inhumane actions. If you are going to continue this path, we will do this as equals, but no longer in a power differential where you are the bully and I have no rights whatsoever. And that is what Jesus is advocating. Not returning violence with violence, but by taking a stand for yourself. And no longer allowing the abuser to dehumanize who you are. It means, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he means, claim your dignity and your self-worth. That wasn't so bad, was it? How about a hand for Michael? That was great. Thank you very much. We'll see what he does to me in our next production. That'll be fun. So what about this business of giving someone your cloak when you've already given them your coat? Well, this requires some cultural unpacking as well. Back in the ancient Near East, back in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was growing by leaps and bounds, building up their armies and their military, and the only way to continue this rapid expansion of both, the, of both their, their buildings as well as their military and economic might was through taxation. It's the only way they could raise all the money that was necessary to continue this massive empire building program that they were doing. And that taxation often came at the greatest burden of those who were at the lowest part of the socioeconomic ladder. That taxation burden often hit hardest the poor, those who were at the lowest of the rung. Oftentimes, poor people couldn't pay their taxation burden. And so what often happened is that Rome, Roman officials would haul poor people into debtor's court. That's why when Jesus says, when someone sues you and takes your coat. Because oftentimes, poor people who were faced with this tax burden would have nothing to give in terms of money. So they would then, in a sense, be robbed of their possessions. Farmers would lose their land. Families would lose all that they owned all the way until the point where they would have nothing else to give to pay their debt except literally the clothes on their back. The very last thing that they owned. And that's why when Jesus said, when someone sues you and takes your coat. That word coat is an interesting word here. It does not mean the kind of coat that we wear today, the kind of coat that many of you are, are wearing on this beautiful, sunny, balmy Sunday morning. doesn't mean a London fog trench coat or a North Face or Columbia jacket. Coat in the ancient Near East literally meant the shirt that you're wearing and the pants that you're wearing. It's your basic article of clothing. That's a coat. For those of you who saw a mall in the night visitors last weekend, you saw that the shepherds were basically wearing coats. It was their one-piece tunic. It's the kind of thing that we normally associate with the kind of wardrobe that people wore in those days. Their basic article of clothing. That's a coat. What Jesus is highlighting here is that some people have been so burdened by economic injustice and by the oppressive Roman Empire that they literally are standing there without their basic clothing on. But Jesus says that when that happens to you, give them your cloak as well. 
When someone's taking your coat, give them your cloak. Now, what's a cloak? Back in those days, a cloak, well, there's no other way to say it. A cloak was your underwear. It was your unmentionables. Cloak, meaning the the last layer, that last article of protection to keep your most personal parts hidden, cloaked from the rest of the world. And what Jesus is saying is that when that coat has been taken of you, why stop there? Give them everything. Go buck naked, which seems awfully foolish and terribly embarrassing. But in the ancient Near East, that is precisely the point. Because nudity was taboo in Jerusalem. To go around naked was utterly humiliating. So if you were to leave the courtroom wearing nothing at all, that would surely bring embarrassment to you. But you know what? It would be nothing in those days compared to the humiliation and embarrassment of the person who put you in that position. Jesus is basically saying that when you have been oppressed by a system or by people who have literally taken away everything that you are, then maybe it's time to be creative. To turn the spotlight of public attention on the system that has put you in that position. So that those who have caused this situation on you will now have the public gaze of the world firing upon them. So that there will be no more hiding this injustice. So that the world will see what has been happening to you and point their attention to the ones who have caused it. This is not returning violence for violence. This is fully disclosing to the world both the injustice and the one who has caused it. That's that's what Jesus is advocating here. It's a very similar interpretation to the way that Jesus says when someone forces you to walk a mile, he says, why stop there? Walk a second mile. Walk a third mile until people notice. And by the way, here it is that you see the theological foundation for protest marching, for the freedom that Jesus gives to people, for the permission that we have to march and assemble and to gather so that the public becomes aware of injustices just like thousands and thousands of people have been doing in this country each of these last two weekends. When you have been the subject of injustice, it is time to do whatever it takes Sometimes through creativity, through humor, through parody, through satire, even things that are embarrassing so that the public can see what the oppressors and the systems have created. Turn the other cheek. Give your cloak. Walk a second mile. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that under no circumstances is violence ever the answer. Not at a single point does Jesus say that if someone strikes you, strike them back. Jesus, under no circumstances, is saying, return hatred with hatred or violence with violence. In the words of Martin Luther King, darkness cannot vanquish darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot be overcome with more hatred. 
Only love can do that. In other words, that negative energy that we sense from those who are causing great oppression cannot be answered with our own negative energy lest we become the mirror reflection of those parts of our world that we're trying to overcome. Only love can do that. A fire cannot be defeated by lighting a match. Jesus says the only way to overcome the enemies of this world is with love. A love that no longer concedes your own sense of self-worth and self-dignity. A love that does not return violence with violence, but showcases to the world the injustice that is happening. A love that refuses to acquiesce to all the oppression in the world, but chooses, in the words of our baptismal vow, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. It's interesting, we chose this text to preach on, on this particular Sunday, months ago. In fact, this whole series called The Difference That Jesus Makes is a series we put together last fall. And there would have been no way to anticipate the kind of world that we would be living in on this particular Sunday. And it's possible that as you hear this text, as you engage this scripture in the the depth of what Jesus is offering, and, and even hear the words that I'm preaching here, it's very possible, if not likely, you are already making connections to the wider conditions and situations of the world today. Make no mistake, Jesus, Jesus lived in a political world. He lived as a political person. And so we cannot simply divorce ourselves of any political connections that we are making, that the Spirit is offering you to make with the things that we see in the headlines day after day, even these last few days. Consider the ways that the immigrant trying even legally to get into this country, might hear these words. Consider how an LGBT youth being bullied at school might hear these words. Consider how a Christian feeling persecution by a government somewhere else in the world might be hearing these words. Regardless of how the Spirit might be working in you to make these connections, know remember the words of Karl Barth, who would often say that we pray with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. It's what it means in many ways to make God's love real in a broken, hurting, dark, and divided world. But also make no mistake, there are personal implications here. This is a text that we cannot ignore for the ways that it informs our personal lives and our relationships with particular people. And I suspect that I don't have to talk much further before you already make connections to the ways that you personally can apply the words of this text. It's possible that you already have filled in the blank by assuming yourself as the person who has been hurt, victimized, oppressed. And you can almost name by name the person who has hurt you, the person who has struck your right cheek in a power differential in which that person has tried to dehumanize you. This text is a challenging word of comfort. 
It's a word that reminds you that you don't need to take that power dynamic anymore. This is a call for you to stand up for your own sense of decency and self-worth, to not allow anyone or any system to dehumanize you anymore because you are a child of sacred worth and God requires you to remember that even in the face of oppression. And I suspect that that is a word that many of us, if not most of us, need to hear. But you know, you know, the converse is true too. As much as we may have been hurt by someone else, we have equal capacity, either willingly or unwittingly, to be the oppressor too. And I wonder if the Spirit might be working in your life to identify those examples in which you have attempted to be the master to subject, to subject someone else to unrighteous treatment. We all can do it. Many of us have done it, and it's possible that even in your hearing this morning, God is calling you to repentance. Because make no mistake, we all have equal capacity to be the bully and the bullied, the oppressor and the oppressed. Jesus says in this scripture reading, the rain falls on the righteous and on the unrighteous, on the just and the unjust. We have equal capacity to be both. But know this, the grace of God is amazing. The fullness of God's forgiveness is for you, even if you have caused harm to someone else. And all it takes is an act of confession and repentance and the choice that you will no longer hurt another person. You know, Jesus says it best. At the very end of this scripture, he summarizes it with a verse that might as well be the banner headline for a church and for Christians today. Jesus says at the end of the scripture, Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love, to everyone. So also, you must be complete. I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer that will include about a 30 second period of silence. It'll just be a time for you to listen to God and for you to talk to God about the way that this text has personal connections for you, either as the person who's been hurt the person who's done the hurting, or both. Let us go to God with courage and confession. Let us pray. So God, we thank you for this hard and difficult word after all. We thank you for the way that you have addressed the core of our human conflicts with each other. I thank you, God, that you have given us a way to address the injustices in our lives and in the world. Not by acquiescence and not by revenge, but by the creativity of your love. Hear us in these moments of silence as we speak to you the ways that your spirit is working in us, either as one who has been hurt the one who has caused harm. Hear us as we pray in silence.
Oh God, we thank you that you are complete in the love that you show to everyone. Call us and empower us to love everyone in just the same way. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray and let all God's people say, Amen.